Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Democrats are full of anxiety about the November election. Whoever they support, they wake up anxious and they go to bed worried that somehow Donald Trump will not be defeated on November 3rd. And now we have more things to worry about. As of this hour on Tuesday afternoon, we have no results from the Iowa caucuses. And so we turn to the man who wrote the book on elections melting down, Rick Hassan. He's a colleague of mine at UC Irvine, where he's Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science. His opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and Slate. And he writes the Election Law blog. It's an essential source on voting. His new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. We reached him today in New York City. Rick Hassan, welcome. It's great to be with you. So the Iowa Democratic Party says they have paper ballots in precinct totals, and it's just a matter of time until we get the final correct results. Uh, so is Iowa a disaster or is it just a delay? Well, I think it's a disaster. If Iowa Democratic Party officials had announced it's going to take two days to count the votes, uh, then I think everyone's expectations would have been different and we just would have recognized that sometimes things take time. And, of course, they were using new technology and they were also using uh, a you know, new, new set of vote totals, three different vote totals uh, in the election. And so had it just been a delay, it would be fine. But instead, we had the expectation we were going to get the results and then there's an unexplained delay. Then all of a sudden, we're told that there are quality control issues, which sounds kind of vague in corporate speak. And then, you know, we ultimately find out that there were all kinds of problems with how the results were reported. And that, of course, created an opening for people like uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager to claim that the system was being rigged, that there was some kind of stealing of the election maybe to hurt Bernie Sanders, who Trump would like to run against. And so I think it was a disaster, and it didn't have to be this way. Until I read your book, I never worried about some other potential disasters. I never worried about a cyber attack on the power grid on Election Day. I never worried about massive blackouts in the big cities that the Democrats need to win, like Philadelphia or Miami or Detroit. Could that happen? So I think technologically it could happen. Uh, there was very good reporting by the Wall Street Journal 
on how we believe the Russians have been able to capture passwords and get into systems that control electrical power. We also know that the Russians actually launched cyber attacks against Ukraine back in 2015, and they were able to bring down the power for a certain number of hours and even locked out the system that was supposed to override that kind of attack. So I think we're technologically vulnerable. We're also vulnerable in terms of our political and legal system in that most states do not have a good plan B if there's some kind of terrorist attack or cyber attack or natural disaster which prevents voting in all or part of a state on a presidential election day. We don't know what the rules would be. There would be fighting over that. It could go to court. You know, and the courts have divided on party lines. So you can kind of easily imagine the nightmare scenarios, a lot of which would be preventable if we had rules in place to deal with this kind of attack. Well, just to stick with the cyber attack for one more minute, I hope that people in charge of cybersecurity for the power grid on Election Day uh, have read your book. Can you tell us anything about that? Well, the good news is after my book went to print, there was a story that U.S. cybersecurity officials are actually doing some kind of simulations to game out uh, how to try to deal with such a situation. So the issue is certainly on the radar. Uh, you know, the problem is it might not be that. It could be something else. Uh, 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 and we're trying to take preparations so that the things that happened in 2016 don't happen again, but then we're fighting the last war, and we're not thinking about what might be new and destructive in 2020. Another thing that keeps my friends up at night is worrying that the loser, Donald Trump, would refuse to concede and instead argue that the election was stolen or rigged, especially if there was something like what happened in Iowa this week. One possibility is not that Trump refuses to concede, but that he declares victory because the vote totals on election night might have him ahead in a swing state like Pennsylvania. We know that Pennsylvania is going to be using new rules involving absentee ballots. You used to have to have an excuse to cast them. You no longer need to have to have an excuse to cast them. Election officials are already warning that it could take days for those ballots to be counted. We also know that those later ballots have tended in other states to be heavily Democratic. And so we saw in California, for example, in 2018, ballot totals shift from Republican leads to Democratic leads. And so Trump could claim victory. He could say that the, uh, he won the election in Pennsylvania, if that's the key swing state in 2020. And ultimately, the election officials will say, no, he didn't. And we could have a protracted fight. We could even see Congress getting involved if there are competing slates of electors to the Electoral College sent over to Congress. It could get very messy. And I should say, none of the things we're talking about are likely. But I think just like with a nuclear meltdown, where there's a small risk of a catastrophe, you really need to think about all of these contingencies and ask what you could do to try to minimize the risk of these things happening. Well, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about Republican threats to voting and the way vote suppression in the red states has been their their strategy for a couple of decades, making it harder to register and, and to vote. But you say there are big problems in voting in the big cities controlled by Democrats. Fairness requires that we ask you to explain. So I think, you know, one issue is, are there deliberate attempts to try to make it harder to register and vote? And I think there's no question that in some Republican states they have passed laws and imposed policies that have been aimed at making it harder to register and to vote. Some of those have been more successful than others in terms of effect. But we do know that incompetence in election administration is an equal opportunity problem. Both Democrats and Republicans who control elections might act incompetently. Just look at the recent Iowa example 
This was run by the uh, Iowa Democratic Party. So there's no Republicans to blame for this, uh, what happened to the Democrats this week in the election uh, in Iowa. Uh, and so uh, it turns out that we get a lot of attention paid to poor election administration in big American cities controlled by Democrats, not because Democrats are more likely than Republicans to be incompetent, but because that's where the votes are. And if it's a close election and there's a big problem and you're looking to figure out what's going on, attention is going to focus to the big city. So I talk, for example, about Broward County, Florida, and Brenda Snipes and how she ran the elections down there, and some other examples of big cities, the city of Detroit, when it ran the 2016 election, and how poorly they ran that election, that they couldn't even conduct a recount that Jill Stein had tried to pay for. So we have had these situations where it's Democrats running the show, and they're just running the show very badly. And let's talk about what the Republicans call ballot security measures. Sounds good. Uh, What were ballot security measures and why are they coming back? Back in the early 1980s, the Democratic Party sued the Republican Party over measures that the Republicans advertised as trying to ensure the security of the vote, ballot integrity, which sounds like a good thing, but they were actually efforts to intimidate minority voters uh, at the polling place. For example, they were things like sending off-duty police officers in uniforms to patrol around uh, minority dominated polling places. And in 1982, the Republican National Committee agreed it wouldn't engage in any of these activities. It signed a a court order. It agreed to what is called a consent decree. And that consent decree had been extended and had been in place until 2017, when the courts finally lifted it. The Democrats argued that Donald Trump and his activities in this area engaged in a kind of vote suppression. And the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit agreed that Trump had engaged in some activities that could be seen as trying to suppress the vote, but said that wasn't the RNC. The RNC is an independent entity for this purpose and is now free to engage in these activities. It's free to engage in legitimate ballot security activities uh, for purposes of securing the vote. So we'll see what happens in 2020. But this is going to be the first election where that consent decree is gone, as are the protections of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, those clearance provisions, which said that states with a history of racial discrimination in voting had to get permission from the federal government before doing things like shutting down a polling place. The Supreme Court got rid of that uh, voter protective provision in its 2013 opinion in Shelby County versus Holder. You write in your book, Election Meltdown, about something called the Election Administrator's Prayer. What is it? Well, so the best hope that none of what I'm describing is going to come to pass is not that we're going to get our act together. I hope we will, but it's not that. It's instead that the election won't be close. Because if the election is not close, this is the election administrator's prayer. Lord, let this election not be close. If that's what we're uh, banking on, it's because if the election... Uh, returns are so overwhelming in one direction or another, even if there have been some attempts to mess with it, or even if there's been some incompetence, it's not going to uh, be determinative in the outcome and people will move on, Uh, right? It's not since Bush versus Gore back almost 20 years ago that we had a problem as serious as to call a presidential election into question. We've had other smaller elections that have been called into question. Uh, So let's hope that whatever happens in Uh, 2020, that it's not a close election and we can squeak through even with the problems that seem to be on the scene. So you've told us about about many of the ways the November election could be sabotaged, undermined, uh, distorted, 
Thank you for that. What are the top two or three things that could be done between today and November 3rd to reduce these threats to American democracy? Well, some of the things are uh, beyond our control, cybersecurity issues that are really in the hands of the government. But uh, putting that aside, you know, one of the things is the role of the news media. I think there has to be an education function to let people understand that, that we may not know who the president is uh, on election night. It might take a few days and that it's normal for vote totals to change and for vote totals to shift from one candidate to another. I think managing people's expectations is important. And it's also important now with about nine months before the election that state election administrators are looking for those weak links, those places that have had perennial problems and do what they need to in terms of poll worker training, in terms of adequate uh, resources, in terms of voting machines that have uh, the ability to conduct a recount, to hand-marked paper ballots is kind of the gold standard here. There's lots that we could put in place before November so that the, some of those risks can be uh, uh, mitigated. One last thing, a personal question. My friends wake up full of dread and go to bed full of anxiety about what could happen on November 3rd. You are a professional on, on the subject. How bad are you feeling right now about November 3rd? Well, I spend my days talking about it now, so I'm quite concerned. But, you know, I tend to be a worrier, and I'm hoping that the worrying is for nothing. I'm hoping that Election Day will be a relatively quiet day for me, because when people are calling me, it means uh, something is going wrong. Rick Hessen, his new book is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, thanks for giving us the bad news about elections in America. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.